Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 521. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now today we have no news. Nothing. we're going to go straight in because we've got quite a nice little show lined up today. The main fiction is On the Ship by Lee Cypress. Then we have an interview with Jeremy Sal. Jeremy is going to interview Spencer Ellsworth. And I've not heard of Spencer, so I'm really looking forward to this because everyone is talking about, or from what Jeremy's saying, about this Starfire trilogy. This is from Tor.com, so... We've got an interview at the end of the show as well. So that is what's coming on the day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up, like I say, is On the Ship by Lee Cypress. Originally published in Asimov's. Lee Cypress wrote her first story in which the narrator was an ice cream cone at the age of six and sold her first piece of fiction while at high school. She has degrees in biology, journalism and law and has travelled to Iceland, Israel, Jordan and Costa Rica amongst other places. She now lives with a family in Silver Spring, Maryland. She is the author of four fantasy novels published by HarperCollins, Mistwood, Nightspell, Deathsworn and Death Mask. They also publish short stories in fantasy and science fiction magazine, Asimov's magazine and Sword and Sorceress, amongst other places. Her story, Nanny's Day, was nominated for a Nebula in 2012. Now this story is narrated by Eliza Chan. Eliza is a Scottish-Chinese writer published in fantasy magazine Fox Spirits Asian Monsters, Present Visions and Milan Review. I think that's how you pronounce it. Millith Review, possibly. She writes about East Asian mythology, British folklore and mad women in the attic, but preferably all three at once. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... On the Ship by Leah Sipis On the ship we sang and danced and drank champagne. Yes, even the children. The adults were indulgent with us, shrugging off the ironclad rules I'd grown up with. No sweets before meals, no videos before bed, no caffeine or alcohol ever. None of that applied on the ship. It was as if they knew childhood was all we would ever have. I didn't like champagne, and neither did Ava, 
but we sipped from the small crystal goblets with their fragile stems and tiny bursting bubbles. Adult privileges were not to be discarded lightly, even when they were disgusting. There were parties on the ship all the time. Gay and joyous, with lively music played almost loud enough to drown out our desperation. But this party was special. An affair not a single one of us would have missed. Louder and faster and drunker than the others. Even Captain Iassi was there. And he was smiling. A sight I kept craning my neck to catch. I had a confused, mostly innocent crush on the captain, and his dimples made my heart squeeze tight. The sub-captains were there too, and all the techs and the scientists who usually preferred their own private parties. There was a particular frenzy to the dancing and laughter tonight. People working harder to tamp down hope than they did to suppress despair. Tomorrow morning, we would reach a planet. It would be our sixth planet fall since the ship had launched. There were twelve on our roster, twelve planets deemed likely candidates. One of them, surely, would be capable of sustaining human life. One of them had to be. But the first five hadn't been, and we had all experienced it before. The rising hope. The hours of waiting when you felt like you could claw your way out of your skin, when all the vastness of space felt like a tiny black box you were trapped in. And then the computer's cool, emotionless voice, instructing us to prepare for departure. We had all stopped hoping. Except we hadn't. So we laughed and danced, and the music strummed through our blood and played with the synapses in our brains, and the ship hurtled through space, no matter what we did inside it. In orbit, everything felt different. It wasn't really. The ship's systems kept us on Earth's gravity no matter what, but I felt heavier, seeing that huge, solid curve in the viewscreens reminding me how tiny our ship really was. Planets made the ship feel far smaller than the infinity of space ever did. My mum's book club is playing a game, Ava said, as we lay on our backs in the library, watching the new world. The planet was orange and white and pale pink, not earth colours. The scientists said that it didn't matter. They're betting on whether the computer says this world is safe. That's awful, I said, sitting up. This isn't something to bet on. Ava rolled her eyes. Go tell them they're on extra surveillance duty then, as a punishment. Ava was the only other kid on the ship my age, hence my friend. But we didn't like each other much. On a planet... With space and choices and freedom, we would never have spent a minute together. I bet the captain would agree with me, I said. Ava sat up too, her eyes narrow. I bet the captain doesn't like tattletales. Time for our daily fight. But before we could start in earnest, 
an adult voice from behind us said, It's not for children to judge their parents' behaviour. Ava and I turned, temporarily united against a common enemy. The woman standing behind us was someone I'd never seen before, which was odd. Over the course of two years in the ship, I was pretty sure I'd noticed everyone. And this woman wasn't someone you'd forget. She was tall, with a mass of red hair that fell to her waist, and green eyes that made her look like a cat. She met my stare. You were the one, she said, who liked red hair. What? I said. She sighed. This planet will not be found habitable. My gut twisted and plummeted, and I had to catch my breath. No matter how much you promised yourself you wouldn't hope, you always did. You can't know that, Ava said shrilly. The analysis takes hours. The confirmation takes hours, the red-haired woman corrected her. The initial analysis is already back. We won't be able to land here. The initial analysis can be wrong, I snapped. Then I frowned, trying to figure out how I knew that. Otherwise, uh, otherwise they wouldn't need confirmation, right? That's correct, the woman acknowledged. 0.0024% of the time, the initial analysis gives a false result. Well, I said, maybe this is one of those times. She smiled. I couldn't tell if it was a sad smile or a proud one, but it was a very adult smile. I hope so, she said. But don't forget, the ship is called the St. Louis for a reason. She turned and walked away. She was wearing a long, multicoloured dress that swished around her heels as if she had never changed after last night's party. It's not true, I said too loudly. I turned fiercely to Ava. Don't listen to her. Don't listen to who? Ava said. I could have sworn she was standing next to me, but now she was lying in the library's soft foam floor. To her, I said, that woman. I don't know what you're talking about, Ava said. The initial analysis wasn't wrong. Four hours later, the St. Louis pulled away from the orange and pink planet, and we were once again adrift in a universe that didn't want us. At times like these, there were no parties. There was nothing at all to mask our despair. Instead, there were therapy groups and unlimited liquor. The violent VR games were unlocked for the passengers who needed them. There were suicide watches, and as usual, somebody slipped through. The ship's computer was perfect at a lot of things, but predicting human behaviour was not one of them. The adults didn't tell me or Ava what had happened, but we knew what it meant when the medics rushed through the corridors, followed an hour later by a solemn gathering near the airlock. They didn't tell us who had died either, and we would probably never know. It's easy not to notice people when they're not there.
When the adults were busy with the suicide, I went to the schoolroom and logged into a computer. I typed in St. Louis and got an entry for an old earth city. I typed in St. Louis ship and got my answer. The St. Louis was a ship of Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany. After being refused entry in both Cuba and the United States, the ship was forced to return to Europe. Forced to return? The words made my stomach swirl. I pulled up the ship's log. Next planet fall in two weeks. Maybe this would be the one. What if none of the planets are any good? I asked my mother one night, after she had finished reading me a bedtime book. Her hands went still on the book. Kitten's First Full Moon by Kevin Hanks. I was far too old for it now, but I still loved it, and my mother was happy to read it. She never pressured me to read harder books or to do anything educational with my time. Would we go back to Earth? I said. No, my mother replied very firmly. We can never go back. Then what if it won't happen? She shut the book. There are more than twelve planets. We plotted out the initial twelve, the closest and likeliest. If none of them work out, the computer will scan further out in space and pick another twelve. She tucked the blanket tight around my body, beneath my armpit. But that won't happen. I believed her, because it had to be true. I couldn't spend my life on the ship in transit. It wasn't a story that made sense. Children always believe they're the centre of every story, realer than anyone else. Sometimes, I guess. Adults believe it too. Don't worry, my mother said. Her voice was soft and soothing, a suggestion rather than a command. Go to sleep. I stopped talking and closed my eyes. Wake up, the red-haired woman said. I blinked and sat up, instantly alert, as if I hadn't really been sleeping at all. She sat at the foot of my bed, her hair in exactly the same non-styled exuberant mass, her eyes unremarkable in the dimness. Why is the ship called the St. Louis? I demanded. Are we refugees? You are, she says. You are. Not we are. I didn't wonder about that until later. Are we Jews? I said. No. She shrugged. But you're in a similar situation. No one wants you to exist. Why? I don't have that information. I didn't believe her. There had to be some reason we were thrust off, propelled into the darkness of space. Some reason the whole world had rejected us. Some reason too terrible to tell a child. I didn't know why she thought it was better to tell a child there was no reason at all. Who are you? 
I said. My name is Penelope. I came to wake you up. I'm awake. Her mouth opened. She blinked, startled, and lifted her fingers to her face. Blood poured from between her lips. It hit my pastel blanket, hot drops splattering across my cheek. I screamed and screamed and screamed until my mother came and untangled me from my sweaty blanket. She turned on the light and there was no one there, no one at all. She held a mirror in front of my face. My skin was streaked with tears, but not with blood. Penelope had been right. I'd been asleep all along. I dragged myself through the next day, through school and sports and meals. Even Captain Iase's pre-lunch speech couldn't perk me up. I thought he looked tired, his brown skin dull, his eyes underlined by shadows. My VR slot that afternoon was a playground on earth, with wood chips and sprinklers, an endless blue sky stretching above it all. I lay back on a tire swing, splaying my legs over the hot rubber and letting it swing me in slow, dizzying circles. The feathery clouds tilted above and around me. I closed my eyes, and the swing tilted higher and faster as if someone had pushed it. I grabbed the chain and sat up. There was no one there. What happened? Ava said, and I blinked at the moss-green walls of the VR console. I glanced at the ceiling clock, and disappointment curdled in my stomach. I'd still had ten minutes left, but the rule was that if you self-ejected, your turn was over. Ava had just gained ten minutes, which annoyed me as much as the fact that I had lost them. There was an unreality in the programme, I grumbled, as I unstrapped myself. It was sloppy. Ava tapped her foot impatiently. She probably wouldn't have noticed the anomaly. She would have stayed in the programme and gotten her full time. I could do better, I said. I'm going to be a VR programmer when I grow up. Yes, Ava said. You will. I turned, spoiling for a fight. But she wasn't being sarcastic. Her voice was absent, distracted, her eyes on the VR menu. I stopped out of the console. The next thing in my schedule was a music lesson, but I walked right past the music room and went home instead. My mother was there, working, but she turned and smiled when I came in. I want to take a nap, I said. That's probably a good idea, my mother agreed. The apartment smelled warm and gingery. I said, I also want cookies. Also a good idea. My mother said, lucky for you, I just baked your favourite kind. By evening, I was feeling better. Tonight there would be a party and children would be allowed to stay up late. Sometimes there were excuses for the parties. Sometimes there weren't. Planetfall wasn't for another week, 
So this was the second time. I put on my favourite blue dress and brushed my hair carefully. Ava and I ran through the crowds, gathering treats and giggling. There were chocolate-covered marshmallows, with the marshmallows deliciously melted and the chocolate still hot and gooey. We gathered our finds at a table with some of the older geologists, who wouldn't try to snag any of our snacks for themselves. But we had ended up with an unequal number of marshmallows, which caused a ridiculous and bitter fight. Ava ended the argument by upending the tree. She meant for it to land in my lap, but I scrambled away, and the marshmallows splattered all over the chair and the floor. One of the geologists gasped. I hate you, Ava shouted, and stormed off sobbing. No doubt to find her mother, who would talk to my mother, who would sit me down for a long, gentle and unendurable talk. Not for the first time, I wondered why my age mate on this ship couldn't have been someone, anyone, other than Ava. Because, Penelope said, it wouldn't be realistic. She was sitting in Ava's seat which left me nowhere to sit since my chair was covered with white goo and melted chocolate. None of the geologists blinked an eye at Penelope, though they were still gaping at the mess. Are you real? I demanded. She shook her head, hair swishing against her shoulders. That's not the right question. Are you dead? I was, for a little while. She shifted uncomfortably. For now, I can still talk to you. About what? But what I said was, For now. I'm certain they will try to kill me again. Who's they? I don't know, she said, so I need you to listen. I'm having a bit of trouble with what you asked me to do. I don't know what you're talking about. She leaned over and snapped her fingers over my chair. It was clean. The sticky white, the globs of brown were gone. The geologists weren't watching me anymore. They were eating little pastries stuffed with raw fish. Do you want to sit? Penelope asked, gesturing at my now clean chair. I shook my head. But you want to see something, she stood. I can show you. Come. I followed her through the crowd, and no one gave either of us a second glance. When we reached the ship's control centre, the guard standing on either side of the main door just stared straight ahead. I stopped walking. What did you do to them? I said. She looked over her shoulder. Nothing. They just can't see you. The guards' faces were expressionless, staring hard at nothing. Their bodies didn't move, even as we strode past them. I had never been in the control area, but it seemed familiar. Penelope led me through a hall, past several closed doors, and through the one that was open. 
Captain Iasse sat in a reclined chair at the centre of the room. He looked up when he saw me and smiled, as if it was perfectly normal for a ten-year-old to be in the control room. Then he smiled at Penelope, a very different kind of smile. And she smiled back, and my whole body tensed. I looked away from them. On the walls, names and numbers and diagrams of circles flickered in shades of purple. No, not circles. Those were pictures of planets. Twelve circles, twelve planets. My heart started to pound. I said, I don't understand. It's too complicated for children to understand, Penelope said. With Captain Ayasi watching, her tone made me bristle. Then she added, But you could, if you wanted to. I want to. You do? She frowned. You do. So that's not the problem. Then what is the problem? She stood perfectly still. Anyone else would have bit her lip or shaken her head. But for her, those few seconds of stillness were the only hint that she was uncertain. Because my brain reached for something. I almost knew. Something I once had known. When? Do you know where you are? Penelope said. She didn't change expression. The only indication that she'd come to a decision was the fact that she was speaking again. The St. Louis, I said. And then, before she could ask me another question, why is it called the St. Louis? Because we're refugees? Like the Jews on that ship? Partly. Because we're being hunted? Because no one wants to help us? Partly. I wanted to punch her. Before I could, she gasped and grabbed at her throat. Penelope, the captain said, half rising. She looked at him, green eyes wide. They're trying again. Run, Captain Yassi said. But the girl, I'll take care of her. She nodded and vanished. The control room was silent, but for a distant whirring, which I hadn't heard anywhere else on the ship. Maybe the noise and talk and music always drowned it out. I looked at the empty space where Penelope had been, and then at Captain Iasse. Who is she? I said. I don't know, the captain stood. She's not on the log. A stowaway, I think. She's known from the start that we might not find a planet to land on. My voice emerged small. But what will happen to us if we have nowhere to go? If there's no place for us on Earth and no place for us in the stars? That's not the universe's problem. He gestured at the screen, at the twelve circles. It's our problem. And we need to solve it. But if we... If we go back to Earth... I could barely get the words out. They'll have to do something with us.
The captain looked as if he both felt sorry for me and could not believe how stupid I was. There is no good solution, he said. Not on earth. With the time dilation, we'll have been gone for decades. Things might have changed, but nobody's going to want us back. Well, I said defiantly, they'll have no choice. There's always a choice, he said. There's more than one way to get rid of inconvenient people. He ran his thumb over his lower lip. What happened to the passengers of the St. Louis when they went back? I looked away. He answered his own question. They were killed. Not all of them, I said. He smiled, as if proud of me for doing my homework. No, some of them escaped. But we're better at killing people now. Then why aren't we dead? I said. His smile vanished. We also feel more guilty about it now. They wanted to get rid of us without killing us, if they could. And if they couldn't? I didn't have to ask. So we'll go on, I said. It felt like I was being tested. It didn't feel like I was passing the test. Eventually, we'll have to find a planet. The captain sighed. You really, he said, should stop saying have to. But, he gestured at the display. We're six planets in, with every planet that fails to meet the habitability criteria. The chances get smaller that we'll ever find a world to land on. No, I said. Ava had just tried to fool me with this math trick last week. That's not how probability works. Every coin flip gives you a 50-50 chance. Even if a hundred flipped coins land heads, it's still 50-50 that the next one will be tails, that the next planet will be good enough. If a hundred coin flips land heads, Captain Iassi said, what's the probability that the coin is weighted? That it was never 50-50 to begin with? I don't know what you mean. I heard the panic in my voice and clamped my lips shut. The room was silent. The vast, deadly emptiness of space pressed in all around us. You have to face reality, Captain Iassi said. You need to make a decision. Me, I said. Why me? I'm ten years old. You're going to have to be older than that, he said. On the morning of our seventh planet fall, I woke fuzzy-headed and afraid. When my mother came to get me, I pulled my blanket over my face. Are you not feeling well? She felt my forehead. I don't want you to miss the party tonight. I'll go to the next one, I said sullenly. My mother's brow knitted. There may not be a next one. This could be it. The computer projections give this planet a 79% chance. The highest yet. Not by much. The first planet had been given a 77% chance of success. 
All the rest had been between 73% and 75%. Everyone in the ship could recite those numbers by heart. What's the probability that the coin is weighted? Mum, I said, what if there's an error in how the computer is making the projections? Of course there isn't. But does it make sense that of all six planets, not one... No one said this would be easy, my mother said firmly. But we can't lose faith. If we keep trying, we'll find a new home. But maybe you should rest. Watch some videos and see how you feel in a few hours. It occurred to me, for the first time, to wonder why my parents were on this ship. It was clear that not all refugees had been allowed to come. There were so few children and so many scientists. My mother was a professor of music and my father was a psychologist. I guess they needed psychologists with all of his trap together. But couldn't they find a psychologist who was married to a botanist or a systems analyst or someone useful? Instead, they had brought my mother, who couldn't even help me. I burrowed back under my blanket and tried not to think. But my mind wouldn't leave me alone. Every time it drifted far enough towards sleep to get soft, a thought would burst through and snap it back. The ship is called the St. Louis for a reason. The coin is weighted. There are more than 12 planets. Finally, I kicked my blanket away, fighting with it until it landed in an uneven heap on the floor. I sat up, my fingers curled into my mattress. I know you can be here, I shouted. Be here! And she was, sitting on the foot of my bed, her hands folded in her lap. Her eyes seemed less brilliantly green than the first time I'd seen her. They watched me, calmly, waiting. It's not going to work, is it? I said. The seventh planet is not going to be habitable. No, Penelope said. She spoke with some difficulty. Half her mouth wasn't moving normally. It's not. Somewhere on the ship, People were dancing and drinking and laughing and loud music was playing. Here, in this small rectangular room, it was so silent I could hear myself breathe. I couldn't hear Penelope breathe. There aren't going to be any habitable planets, I said. Are there? I can't answer that. There might be. She lifted her hand to her mouth. When her fingers came away, there were blood on them. Help me, she said. I can't, I said. This is a dream. I need to wake up. You do, but you're fighting it. Her lips were also dark now, blood welling up in them. Help me. You know why I'm here. She was right. I did know. 
Children always believe they're the centre of every story. Sometimes they're right. You were the one who liked red hair. I had made Penelope and made her a redhead. You'll have to be older than that. I could be, because I had been. I'm going to be a VR programmer when I grow up. Yes, you are. This whole ship, all of us, it's a VR program. I didn't wait for her to nod. I'm the one who made it, and now I'm trapped in it. It was made by many people, Penelope corrected me. You were one of them. I twisted my nightgown between my hands. It was pink and lavender, with ruffles around the hem. It felt soft and pilly and very real. Wake me up! Wake me up now! I've been trying, she said. You told me to wake you if the first six planets weren't habitable. But you won't wake up. Why not? You like the programme you helped design, she said. You don't want to leave it. She lifted both hands to her mouth. Blood spilled through her fingers. So you're trying to kill me instead. The room around me, the spare lines of my bed and desk and clothes cube blurred. Through them, I saw lines and lines of cryo-chambers, laid out in spiralling geometric patterns, so as not to look like coffins, I had thought once. I could no longer hear myself breathe. All was silent, as silent as space, as silent as sleep. As silent as death. The mirage wavered, and I was back in the world I had created. My room was solid and clean around me, the air still tinged with the warm scent of ginger cookies. It's not healthy for minds to remain static that long. We need a program that provides stimuli, one that meshes with what the sleepers know of their situation. A man with dark skin and white hair telling me that, trying to sound hopeful. Lines of cryo-chambers, sleeping bodies held static and frozen. But they knew they were hurtling through space, and in the dream their limbs moved and their ears heard music. Penelope screamed, and I snapped back to the present, to the dream I was ensconced in. The dream where she didn't belong. She, unlike the rest of us, wasn't a sleeping body on the ship. She was a simulation that didn't exist outside of the programme. And someone was trying to push her out. Blood trickled from her nose and leaked from under her fingernails. A person would have doubled over in pain and panic. But now that I knew what she was, she just sat straight, looking at me, while blood dripped from her skin onto my sheets. I knew there might be no planets, I said. I helped write the ship's VR program, but I must have suspected we had nowhere to go.
That's why I wrote you in. She spoke around the blood in her mouth. That is correct. You're a subroutine, I said, and I created you. If you knew I could get sucked into my own programme, it's because I knew that could happen. I would have made you able to force me awake, even against my will. I tried, she said. Then I'm not the one stopping you. And I'm also not the one trying to kill you. She shook her head. It has to be you. There is no other person on this ship who's aware that they're in a simulation. It's not me. I took a deep breath and tried to sound more like a grown-up. Someone else, one of the other programmers, must have known what I did. And they created another subroutine to stop you. Blood dripped onto her lap as she considered it. Yes, that seems likely. And now I was trapped in a programme with that second subroutine, who was walking around like Penelope in the guise of a passenger on the ship. Trapped here like the rest of us, but not human at all, not looking for home. One person, on the ship, happy to drift through space forever, and to make sure we all did, by keeping me asleep. I tried to think of something to ask, some clue Penelope could give me, to help me figure out who was killing her. Who else was part of the programme, rather than the simulation of a human's sleeping mind? But before I could, Penelope made a gagging sound and clawed at her throat been crumpled into a heap on the foot of my bed. I expected her body to disappear, but it just lay there, no longer functioning. I got out of bed, carefully avoiding the blood-stained section of the mattress. Then I headed for the party. Tonight's party seemed louder than all the others, the music making the air thrum, working its way under my skin and into my blood. It made me want to dance and dance and dance until I was too exhausted to do anything except sleep. But I'd done enough sleeping. We all had. I knew why we partied. Because this wasn't real life. Because this ship wasn't home. We were human. We needed earth beneath our feet and a horizon to look at. But we didn't have that, and we never would, and not all the music and drink in the world could drown out our knowledge of where we were. Even a VR programme couldn't make us believe, deep down, that we were home. Everyone in the ship was at the party, but I couldn't find Ava. Usually she waited for me in a nook near the kitchen where we could get a first glimpse of whatever treats were coming. Today, she wasn't there. I took a bowl of chocolate-covered strawberries and wove through the crowd, looking for her. Around me, people shouted and danced and drank, their bodies and faces as real as their laughter. I tried to make them all vanish, to squint and see through them, to remember that all these dancing bodies were really sleeping 
in sealed boxes. It didn't work. I popped a strawberry between my teeth, and the sweet tart taste spread through my mouth. I was trapped in the programme too. If I was going to find the subroutine, I was going to have to do it inside this reality. I circled the room twice and was starting to panic when I heard Ava's nasal, demanding voice. I turned, heading in the direction of the sound. And there she was, in a red, ruffled dress, silhouetted against the viewscreen. My mother and the captain stood on either side of her. Behind them, the stars were bright and sharp and uncaring. You've grown, my mother greeted me. I was at eye level with her. I looked down at my long, spotted fingers, at the distance between me and the floor, and felt a pang. I was going to miss being a child. I need to be an adult now, I said, and my mother and the captain nodded. Ava folded her arms and scowled at me. No fair, she said. Who would I play with? You don't need to play, I said. You're not real. Ava snorted. I'm just as real as you are. Well, she had a point there. Ava stuck her chin up and glared. The captain smiled at me, differently from how he'd smiled when I was a child. His dimple deepening, one eyelid dropping. My mother waited patiently, her hands folded together. It struck me how very not real they were. Dream creatures, all of them. But one of them hadn't come from my dream, and my stomach dropped as I realised. It wasn't the one I thought. I'm going to wake up, I said. You can't stop me. They all looked at me, unsurprised and unblinking. I lifted the bowl of strawberries and smashed it over my mother's head. When I opened my eyes, there was no music. The ship was almost completely silent. After several seconds of listening, I could make out a faint whirring, softer than the sound of my breath. I was lying in a box-like structure, but the lid was open and the electrodes were detached. They had left sticky, itchy circles on my skin. I scratched one, then climbed out of my cryo-chamber. My hip ached and my neck cracked as I looked around. The chambers were laid out in the geometric patterns I'd remembered, but the lids were opaque, so I couldn't see the people in them. It was as if they didn't exist, as if they didn't matter. People with no faces and no future. I was the only one awake in this entire vast ship, and I wasn't sure I mattered either. I made my way between the cryo chambers and down a hall to the control centre. My steps got surer as I walked, memories coming back. The innocent girl I had programmed myself to be dropped further and further away. But she would come back, I hoped. After I made this one decision, I would put myself back in the programme 
and the dream would begin again. But right now, I had to face reality. The first thing I did was search for the subroutine designed to keep me asleep. It was easy to find now that I knew it was there. I pulled it loose from the system, hesitated, then pressed a key that wasn't delete. A shimmer and my mother sat next to me as if on a chair, though there was only one chair and I was sitting on it. I'm sorry I hit you, I said. I had to. She smiled. I forgive you. Of course I do. The mother every child wished for, but I had designed this program as an adult. To an adult, the perfect mother wasn't someone who let me do what I wanted. Drink champagne, party until midnight, skip school and be rewarded with cookies. That parent had been invented for a child. But think, my mother said, think about what you're doing. I only want what's best for you. Is it best, I said, for me not to have a choice? None of us had a choice. She put a hand on my wrist. We weren't in VR, so I didn't feel her touch. There wasn't even a brush of air against my skin. You got on this ship back on Earth. You created this entire reality. Why would you have done that if not because you knew you had to leave? People have gotten on ships before, I said even though they had nowhere to go. We can't go back, my mother said. We built the ship to escape. No, I said. I don't think we did. She lifted an eyebrow and I took a deep breath. I think someone else built the ship to get rid of us. That's silly, she said. You're imagining things. I'm not imagining you, I said. Someone set you up to stop me from waking, because none of us were ever meant to wake. They knew there were no planets, and they sent us anyhow. A ship full of dreamers floating endlessly through space. We had nowhere to go, and now we didn't need anywhere to go. We could dream forever. Far from the people who didn't want us in their world. They couldn't make our sleeping minds believe we were home. Or even that we had a home. That we were headed somewhere definite and safe. But they could make us believe we had a chance. Of someday, somewhere, standing on solid ground. Maybe they thought they were being merciful. I must have suspected, or I wouldn't have created Penelope. And someone else must have known I suspected. So they had given me my mother to keep me dreaming. I'm sorry, I said. I don't even remember what you were really like. She opened her mouth. I pressed delete, and she was gone. Penelope. I said. The computer's voice was chill and monotone. That program has terminated.
The ship felt vast and cold, stretching all around me. So large, carrying so many people, yet we were just a pinpoint in space. How tempting it must have been. So much space, vast and endless, for the people with no spot on earth to call our own. If only we could find somewhere else to be. If only that somewhere was away. I logged into the ship's navigation course, and there they were. The six remaining planets, and then another twelve, and twelve after that. We could search forever, floating through space. Nobody's problem, not even our own. In our minds, we would dance and laugh until the life support quietly gave out. Maybe we wouldn't even know when it did. Maybe we would stay in the dream forever. I reached up to the screen to trace the chart with my gnarled, spotty finger. And only then did I see the heading on the top. Navigation chart for Hope 72. All the breath went out of me. The ship wasn't named the St. Louis after all. It was named Hope, because hope was what they were selling us. It was what got us on the ship, circling endlessly through space, where nobody on Earth had to think about us. Hope 72. How many ships exactly like this one were there? I flinched away from that thought. I could only think about this ship, which I, in my programme, had named the St. Louis, because the St. Louis had gone back. I had known when I set the programme what choice I would end up having to make. It took just a few keystrokes to reset the navigation. My fingers didn't even tremble. It took an extra half hour to recreate my sub-programme. When I was done, Penelope sat where my mother had been, her slim hands folded in her lap. Wake me up, I said, when we're in Earth's orbit. You won't want to wake, she said. Do it anyhow. She didn't nod, but then she didn't have to. As I pulled the cryo lid down, I heard the whirring around me speed up and get louder. I felt the heavy drag as the ship began to slow down, to change course. Then my mind went hazy, and I heard the distant sound of music. A smile curled my lips upwards as the lid closed off the view of space. The cryo air swirled around me, and my dreams pulled me in deeper. And all around me, the ship came alive again. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Lee. Lee, thank you so much. And Eliza, thank you. What can I say? Woohoo! Thank you so much indeed. Now, like I say, we're going to just jump straight in. Jeremy is interviewing Spencer Ellsworth, who is the author of, like I mentioned at the top of the show, Starfire Trilogy. This is from Tor.com. Now, we'll put a link on there as well if you want to go over, because Jeremy's saying, get this book. It is fantastic. 
So, Jeremy, I'm going to hand it over to you, sir. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeremy Zahl, and today we're going to be talking to Spencer Ellsworth. Spencer Ellsworth is the author of the Starfire trilogy, which begins with the space opera epic A Red Peace, which is currently available, and its sequels, Shadow Sun 7 and Memories Blade, all from Tor.com. We talk about space opera as a genre, how he wrote three books with a goal of 50,000 words each, why he populated his universe with spaceship bugs, and how you can sometimes lose grasp of your own narrative. The first book, as I mentioned, is currently available from Door.com. It is amazing, it's a very, very enjoyable read, and I do hope you'll be able to pick it up after listening to this interview. Please enjoy. Alright, Spencer Ellsworth, thank you very much for coming on to Starship Server today to talk to us. It's really good to meet you. Ah, thank you for having me. Would you be able to tell us a bit about what Starfire is about? Yeah, uh, so the Starfire books are a space opera trilogy set about 10,000 years in the future. It starts with a, a big uh, oligarchical galactic empire falling and a brave resistance coming in. This is sounding familiar, yeah. And as soon as the resistance gets into power, they say, now we can do what we really want to do and let's kill all the humans. Uh so Starfire's the main characters are a soldier who kind of finds his conscience in these unconscionable orders, and a smuggler ne'er do well character who uh, ends up trying to save some of the humans targeted by this genocide order. Um, I, I guess I uh, when I was writing it, I I didn't think about this too much. But when I was writing, I was watching Star Wars: The Clone Wars, and uh, I think I I had sort of had these thoughts about. Um, all the places Star Wars never goes, and uh, genocide orders were one of them. And so I, I started writing a space opera in my head about a galactic genocide order, and it went from there. Which is funny that so many people tell me it's a fun book, because it really does have a lot of goofy, <laughs> lighthearted moments for a book that starts with a genocide order. Yeah, and so you you mentioned that you have two protagonists, so a lot of books have uh, just one. Why did you go with two, and why did you write them both in first person? Uh, so, God, I, I think it was just, it's a good, that's a good question. Their voices came into my head pretty clearly. Um, you know, I was, when you plan out a book, different things spring out to you, right? A description might spring out to you, a particular character might come on strong. And then for me, this, uh, Jackie's voice and Ariscar's voices, I could hear them in my head. I could hear how they would talk. I could hear some of the jokes they were going to make. I could tell, and so first person is of course the uh, the best, the closest to a voice. Third person is is always you're crossing a little bit of a gap to be in the character's head. A first person allows you to really be the character, um, and I think that despite the fact that I love third person, and I think I do it pretty well. I think that I've done a lot of my best writing in first person for that reason. Yeah, and so. You talked about a little bit while back that your your world takes place tens of thousands of years in the future, while most other space opera writers just go with hundreds of years in the future or even a thousand. Why'd you go in the tens of thousands? Um, I wanted to actually have the idea that all our dreams have come true. We created an empire that spread across galaxies, and then something went horribly wrong. And what the galaxy in which this I have a sort of big whole universal vision for other stories that could take place in this milieu but the galaxy where a red piece takes place 
Specifically, a thousand years ago, they were invaded by enormous sun-eating space spiders. And um, they've been locked in perpetual warfare against the space spiders for a thousand years. And uh, that's shaped... It's the soldiers who were created to fight the space spiders that uh, become this resistance force that overthrows the empire and becomes worse in their turn. Um, so that was... I really like the idea of going so far in the future that you could actually look back on the pinnacle of human achievement that we all dream of and then say, and then it all went terribly wrong. Yeah, like it gives you a lot more to play with as well. Like it takes it out of cultural context so you can just overreach yourself and see what else, what we can do in tens of thousands of years. And I think it's quite interesting at least. Um, You mentioned giant sun-eating spiders and on the cover that you have this massive bug that forms as a spaceship. <laughs> so why why did you use giant bugs as spaceships? Oh, God. You know, that's that's a really good question. I'm still not sure. That's a thing everyone's seized on because there's all sorts of... In the first book, um, this resistance has bought basically uh, military surplus bug shells from a, an alien race. They bought their old exoskeletons and converted them into uh, space fighters. And then in the second book, there's a prison built out of a giant space tick, and our heroes have to break into the prison for reasons you'll see when the second book comes out on Tuesday. Um, I grew up in a pretty uh, nuclear wasteland-looking part of California, a real inland, uh, the inland Mojave Desert, and... um, it wasn't a, a lush place. There wasn't a lot of greenery, and so there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of wildlife. But there were a ton of bugs, and so I think, uh, you know, you would see stink bugs. You would see uh, ladybugs coating the walls of the house. You'd see ants. There were terrible fire ants everywhere, and uh, you know when they bite you, it's really awful. And so I think when I started writing these, and I started thinking of it as kind of a, a war blasted galaxy, I just brought bugs in. And yeah, the the bugs just got to a more crucial and crucial part of uh, of each book. <laughs> Still, I'm not quite sure why it was such a thing for me, but it was. Yeah. So when you were writing the book, did things like this bugs just slowly form into your world, or how much of it did you outline already? How much of it did you have in your head by the time you started writing? Um. So I I tend to be not a big world builder. I tend to write a first draft and then I tend to go back and fill in the corners that I, um, so, but I did have a, I, very, I had a very tight outline on a red piece. I think it was, this was the moment of confirmation that I'm an outliner because I had a really tight outline on a red piece and it went all the faster for it. But I, I did, uh, I, I left some things, you know, kind of vague, um, about the world, the galaxy that they lived in. And so I went back and filled in. So, you know, we all do we all do different degrees of world building. Some people, they have this really intense world they create. They know everything about it. And some people, we kind of feel it out, and it expands as the story expands. And is there anything that surprised you when you were slowly expanding it? Is there anything that just suddenly took center force and you thought, no, I've actually got to write this, this funky new idea? Yeah, there was this thing um, where... The soldiers, uh, the soldiers of the resistance who become the uh, the genocidal soldiers, they have they carry around swords, 
and the swords can take someone's memories. And uh, that that sort of that in, started to encompass a lot of things. The fact that you can be walking around with stolen memories in your head, or you can actually take the sword to you yourself and take out some of your own memories. And that became a you know the the title of the third book is Memories Blade. There's a saying in the books that memories blade cuts deepest of all, and um, that really that really blew up the idea of uh, memory and the things we forget and the things we remember. You have to read the second and third book to get <laughs> where I go with that. But you know, when I started writing it, I didn't think I want to put swords in there that steal your memories. I forget what the impulse was, but it just sort of popped up at one point and it solved a few it solved a few plot problems <laughs> and uh, so I went with it yeah and sen- and since the novel is a space opera how did you keep the material light and compact with ha- when you have all these other ideas like soul swords and whatever just yeah. screaming to take center force how do you keep it tight and focused oh man that's a good question because uh, originally the way a red piece got started I had the idea, I wrote a couple chapters, I thought, this is terrible, this is crap, no one will want this. But I had to go to a workshop. I was speaking at a a little local workshop. Since I was speaking, they had also allowed me to do a crit session with Beth Meacham, who's a senior editor at Tor Books, who's also at the workshop. And so I had Beth read this because I had nothing else. I mean, you know, I just hadn't written anything lately that that was in a state to be critiqued. Um, and I wanted to bring her something new. And she said, this is really good, and I think it would make a good Tor.com novella. And so immediately I had like an upper limit of 50,000 words because she said novella. And it ended up being about 53,000 words, but uh, it's still close enough. So I knew it had to be tight. I had to leave a lot of uh, the bigger stuff going on outside the story to the audience's imagination because – And you might see this, too, you know, when you read it. A red piece could have been a thousand-page space opera with eight points of view. There's obviously other interesting stuff going on in other corners of the galaxy in the story. But I kept it focused on these two characters and their growth. And I tell you, it got really difficult in the second and third book because I could have really let them sprawl. Um, And so what I'm going to do is write eventually more stories that fill in some of this history I uh, created because, um, you know, I, I always had that word count and I always had that goal of being following these two characters' journey and not letting it sprawl out beyond those two characters. Yeah, because as I was reading it, like I was thinking it is pretty light. For, for a space opera to be 50,000 words, it's a little bit unusual. And I was going to ask if you had written it originally or if, if you'd had to chop it up and reshape it to be form part of this trilogy. Uh, was it ever tempting to just to just keep on going and to keep expanding it and expanding it? Uh, there were, you know, the second book was where I hit a lot of those issues. Uh, originally, the second book had a third character's point of view. The third book does have a couple chapters from other characters' point of view because the story got too big to just see through two characters' eyes. But um, my editor told me to rein it in on the second book. Because she said, I feel like you're writing something that you should just save to pitch as another novel with this other character. And she was right. I was falling in love with another character and giving him a lot of screen time. But uh, uh, I could he sort of needed his own story. Um, so that was deliberately the second book, of course. I don't know if you've ever had to write a sequel on commission to anything. 
hopefully soon when you, your agent sells your books, you'll have to write sequels on commission. Have you ever done that writing to like writing a sequel to something on? Uh, not quite yet. My agent did ask for outlines for sequels, but that's about it. So I'm pretty inexperienced yeah. in this department. <laughs> that's the same thing I had. And, uh, that was just a really, it was just a huge struggle. And part of that was, um, feeling the story get grow to the point where I had to shut down some of the directions it was sprawling in because it would not have been the sequels already longer than the first. And it definitely would have, you know, it would not have been a tour.com novella if it kept going, it would have been a tour.com tome. And I don't think they do tomes. I think you have to be the proper tour for that. Not yet. Anyway, <laughs> who knows what it can happen. Uh, and yeah. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, you've got your sp- your spaceship bugs you've got your necro wasps you've got your sun eating spiders and this is there's and soul swords let's not forget you've got technology that's bursting out of this book or this really funky ideas and when you had to rein it in as you put it is there any of this technology or any of these cool tech that got cut i did when you read the second book you'll see there's a caper through the guts of a giant space tick and uh it's it's a space tech carapace that's been converted into a prison. Wow. And I, I had a lot of I had a lot of fun like building the prison in my mind and uh building some you know unrealistic but hilariously fun ways to get around. And so there were a few things I eventually had to cut, but I actually think that uh as I as I rewrote the second book, um I would cut some technological stuff. I would come up with better stuff, you know, and I would with better ways for my made-up technology to factor into the ending. Um, all the good, all the bad stuff is in there. Your trilogy, are you ever going to keep working in this universe? I think you answered a little bit while back, but are you going to, like, as a novel, are you going to keep working in this universe or expanding it into novellas or are you going to tr- go something completely new? Yeah, I've got... Um, I, I'm one of those people cursed with a lot of ideas. But I've got two ideas that take place adjacent to a red piece. Not about the same characters, but I've got a short story I'm working on. Uh, that there's a character named Z, and this short story will fill in a little bit of his background because uh, it takes place on his home world. I'm not sure how much of a character he will be. And then I've got another idea for a novel that just shows you what, what happened to another corner of the galaxy when this disaster happened, what, how this other corner of the galaxy is doing a thousand years later. It's about a solar system that was once part of this intergalactic empire and it has been isolated for a thousand years, no faster than light travel coming in and uh, has become a really, and has is starting to, these terraforming projects that were done in the past are starting to degrade. Uh, so that's a big idea. That's a one or two se- uh, book series. And I think that's probably the one that my publisher will want next. That's probably the one I'm going to have to write next. There is something annoyingly romantic about writing when it just keeps spilling and spilling and going overboard and you've got so many ideas that just won't fit on the page and you've just got to keep writing it and they keep spiraling on from there. And especially in a genre like space opera where you've got the entire universe to play with, it's quite an achievement to be able to nail that down into 50,000 words like you have. And so it'd be really interesting to see what else you can do in 50,000 word petitions or in a novel petition. So other than that, what are you working on next? That is the official next project. I, I do write fantasy and I, I think you can tell already that when I write space opera, it tends to be fantasy in space. 
you know, it tends to be more Dune than The Expanse. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of uh, crazy things that happen that you could call magic. So I, I'm working on a fantasy right now, but it's a it's sort of a big project. It's a kind of a, a crusade slash Arabian Nights sort of uh, project, and it's just huge. And I've been doing it for years, and I will probably be doing it for years to come. But uh, maybe one day the the Crusades book will be ready. That's people who know me are like, oh, the Crusades book again. So you're not and wanting then, to move on to anything else. You want to be able to like stick with that and improve it. Um. Well, I. I gave up on it about seven years ago and then wow. not seven, about five years ago. Yeah. I gave up on it. And, uh, then this year, because I was, you know, your brain is a, your brain's a traitor. Your muse is a traitor to, uh, whatever you're working on. The fastest way for me to get ideas about a lot of other things is to work on something to the point that I can't stop working on. You know, the Starfire books had deadlines and I was having fun with them, but they become, you know, they become the main project and, your muse, your muse is not very faithful to their spouse. The, the muse, as soon as the muse gets locked down, it's, it goes looking for a good time somewhere else. And so uh, I found that my muse was giving me, oh, you could fix the Crusades novel ideas. It, it's been nice. I got a lot of ideas that will carry me forward for years. But um, I do wish the muse sometimes was not so quick to think of new ideas as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's committed. <laughs> Really. <laughs> so has being has writing these tight fifty thousand word books allowed you to write tighter stuff because you've been doing it for so long, or is it you know just taught taught you okay now I really need to write something big like a Crusades novel? It does a little bit of both, I think, Jeremy. I think what happened was I learned a lot. I learned a lot, especially in those last in those moments in the second and third book where I say this could be bigger. But it's Jackie and Ariscar's story, and if it gets bigger, it'll be the story of Jackie and Ariscar and four to five other people. Yeah. And so, I, I there was a lot of uh, stay focused, stay on this because it's these characters' journey, and it's betraying the story if you go outside of it. Um, and uh, so I learned a lot through that. I learned a lot through hitting a fifty to sixty thousand word count and staying inside of it. But yeah, I also, when I was done, had the impulse to write something that just, it's just for me. And, and if it's 300,000 words, then, you know, it, it'll be 300,000 words. And <laughs> I think you get that you, you set yourself more challenges. Um, you also kind of let the, if you have to write something small and tight, you want to let it breathe. And I'm sure you know this because you write short stories and novels. Uh, and sometimes if you've written a lot of short stories and you've been really concerned about coming in at the right word count and hitting the right, being able to appeal to a lot of markets because the shorter the better for a lot of markets. You can, sometimes you can really relax if you're like, oh, I'm going to write a novella or a novel and I can just sprawl. I can write, I can write scenes and not question whether or not they're effective until. I think, I think as well that short fiction writers and people who listen to this podcast now have a certain expectation when they, when they listen to this stuff where they listen to short fiction or read short fiction, they're expecting it to wrap up nice and tight in a bow at 5,000 words or in an hour, uh, an hour's time. Like at Starship Sofa, if I started putting in 50,000 uh, word projects uh, and stories in here, it would run on for hours and hours. I mean, lose our, lose our audience. And you'll notice a lot of podcasts and a lot of short fiction venues tend to circle the 4,000 to 6,000 word 
count. And so I think that's and I think that's more of not just the taste of the editor, but what the audience expects. The people who read Tor.com novellas expect a certain word length, they expect a certain type of arc and narrative to be tied up within uh, the word account that they've got. So I think it's really interesting to see how different people consume lengths of fiction with different expectations. Yeah, I I am kind of naturally a longer writer. The novelette is about my comfort length for a short story. And I look at someone like um, Tim Pratt. He's a real master of the short story. And he can do things in 4,000 words that would take me twice as long. And he's just... And uh, that that's what you... Both sprawling and letting yourself draft, making every word count. Uh, those are both really good things for writers to do. And I'm really glad I, I broke in, quote, broke in by writing short fiction. I think that people who just write novels are missing um, some of the fun of the short fiction field and some of the fun of some of the fun things you learn when you have to be ruthless with your word count. Yeah. So I think we're going to wrap it up there, but you can buy uh, the first book in the Star in the Starfire series, The Red Piece, from Door.com now. It is excellent. I highly recommended it. I am a big fan of space opera, and this hit all the right pointers from me. So take it, take or leave. If you respect my opinion or not, is up to you. But you're more than welcome to find out for yourself. Uh, the next book launches next month, and the third book launches when Spencer. February 27th. So Shadow Sun 7, the second book, is actually out next week, November 28th. It's even closer to Jeremy than me because it's tomorrow where Jeremy is. <laughs> and uh, the third book, Memories Blade, comes out February 27th. Um, and if you put them all together, you'd have about a, you'd have about 600 pages. So uh, if you haven't read the whole trilogy, it's, it's going to read pretty fast when it's complete. Although, of course, Tor is hoping you will buy it in the episodic format. And that's how we wrote it to feel like strong individual episodes. All right. So go and buy them in the episodic format, like the man says. All right. Spencer Ellsworth, thank you very much for coming on here to Starship Sofa to talk about your book. It's really exciting to have you on. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you, sir. And Spencer, thanks for taking the time to come on Starship Sofa. Used two gentlemen. Jeremy, sir, big hugs, lad. Thank you so much. So that is 521. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming by. Like I said, we had no news. We're just carrying on. We're a bit like Voyager. We're now kind of going out of the solar system. Ten years there. Just still going on, still going strong. So if you can support her, by God, yes, that would be fantastic. Over on Patreon, we are now rattling out the, the shows, the Silverberg Show is coming. So if you want to kind of, that's a, I'm getting a few people come over who are, you know, there's about four or five now in the line so you can get, grab them straight away. So that's nice. You know, you can kind of get into it straight away. And we've got the Red Dwarf. You know, we've finished season one of Red Dwarf. And I watched the other day, you know, season, season two. I watched Crichton, which is the first one of season two. Now this is played by the actor. Oh, I forget his name there now. You see. That's how good it is when you you pay to get it. Reese, somebody, Reese. And this is not like Robert Llewellyn, who normally plays Crichton in the kind of show. But, man, it's just like still. Do you know what I mean? It's still got it. It still works. It is a fantastic show. Do you know what I mean? Time hasn't aged it. The jokes are still funny. The jokes are so funny. And it's so sharp. That's what I love about it. It's like... 
timing. Do you know what I mean? It's like inevitably Rimmer kind of, you know, will fall from grace or want something or claws at something. And Lister's there with just the perfect lines, you know, timing. So if you do like that kind of stuff, you can talk about Red Dwarf and you wanted to watch it along with her because that's what we're doing. We're kind of going through, you know, each show and I'm having a little chat about it. And you can kind of, you know, watch along as well. It's on Netflix, you know, so there you go. That's it then. I'm off. I'm out of here. I've got work this afternoon. Yes, dear job. Big thank you, everyone, who has, like, say, supported on Patreon. If you want to go over there, man, it would help out. It certainly does. It just keeps this going and keeps, you know, the, the shows going. Thank you so much. Until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there